First Peter chapter one is where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bibles, First Peter chapter one, uh, we'll we'll be looking at verses six through nine. Uh, interesting fact for you: if you look in the Greek, First um, Peter one three through nine is all one sentence. Um, so instead of in our versions, we have to kind of break it up because uh, we don't we don't think like thoughts that are that long. Uh, but in Greek, you can really string things together and make them really long. And so I think this is the longest sentence in the entire New Testament is First Peter 1, 3 through 9. Um, so this is all really one thought. So if you think back to what he was talking about last time, he was talking about the fact that God, according to his great mercy, had caused us to be born again to a living hope. A hope that, that, uh, that was through the resurrection of Christ that, that leads us to an inheritance that isn't, isn't defiled. It isn't, it isn't, uh, perishable. It isn't something that fails or falters or, or gets blemished or messed up. That, that inheritance that's lasting because it's being kept in heaven for us. And not only is it being kept for us, but we're being kept for it because God is guarding us through his power for that salvation through the intermediary of faith. All of this idea, he's continuing in verse 6. So stand with me as we read from 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would drive this word so deep into our hearts that even as the heart pumps blood through our veins, we can hear the rhythm of your grace in it. Lord, would you speak to us in this time and make us more like you? In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's, a, uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing thought when you take it all together. When, when you see everything that Peter is expounding on here, when you, when you get a glimpse from, from the time that God decided uh, to show us mercy through, through that, that process of birthing us into a new kind of birth, a birth that isn't from the flesh but is from the Spirit of God, making us wholly different people, and how that birth gives us hope a living hope, not a dead hope, not a hope that is that is uh, uh, that's empty and void of promise, but the hope in a certain eternity, a hope in an inheritance, a hope that lasts in Jesus Christ. That the that his not only his revelation but his resurrection from the dead proves that hope to be valid and sure. And then when you begin to when you begin to see that God in his power is guarding us, protecting us, securing us. No wonder he starts verse 6 with this phrase, in this you rejoice. 
scholars want to ask uh, questions about this because the word could be present tense or it could be future tense. It could be that we rejoice now. It could be that we rejoice in the future. And in what do we rejoice? I mean, are we rejoicing in what comes immediately before? That the salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time? Are we rejoicing in the fact that he's caused us to be born again? Are we rejoicing in the fact that we have an inheritance? And of course, the answer to all those questions is obviously yes. We are rejoicing now, but our rejoicing is not complete. We are rejoicing now because we have that future hope, but our rejoicing will be completed then when that hope comes to pass. We rejoice not only in that hope, not only in that inheritance, but in that Savior, Jesus Christ, who has secured it for us. In the God whose power guards us and holds us and keeps us. We're rejoicing in all this. Not just in one particular aspect here or there. I mean, besides, once you start thinking about what God has done for you, doesn't it just lead you to think of other things too? And doesn't that lead you to just praise him all the more? That's exactly what Peter is doing. So he says, in this you rejoice. In what? In all this you rejoice. You rejoice now, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He, puts, he starts putting together this chain. How, how, how can we rejoice? Well, we rejoice first because we are tested. And because we are tested, our faith is genuine. Because we are tested, our faith is genuine. This word here for trials is testing. But it's not testing like how much do you know? Fill in the blank. Check all that apply. True or false. This isn't the test that you would take in school to make sure you learn the material. This isn't the test that you would take to certify for an exam, to have some sort of credential behind your name. This isn't the test that you would take to defend even your, your doctoral thesis so you could be a doctor of whatever. This isn't that kind of a test. This kind of a test is a careful examination that shows who we are. Testing that carefully examines our character. That's what's meant by trials. And so trials are not just tests. They're not just bad things you're going through. They are things that are specifically designed to reveal who you are. And even though for right now you are grieved by all these trials, all of these tests, all of these provings, it's the same word that's used in James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. These trials are testings that carefully examine our character. And it's because we are tested that we know our faith is genuine. It's because we are tested 
then our faith is proven to be true. Look at verse 7. So that. You, you, you rejoice even though right now you're going through all these trials and even though those trials are grieving you, they're causing deep emotional and mental and physical distress. So that. Even though you're going through all these trials, and you're being grieved through all these trials, all these tests that reveal who you are, it's tough. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. You cannot say faith is genuine until it is tested. It might be, but we don't know yet. How do you know that you're going to be able to put a man on the room on the moon if you've never flown the rocket that's supposed to get him there. Think back to the 1950s or 1960s, early on in the decade. John F. Kennedy makes that famous speech where he says, we choose to go to the moon and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. At that point, there is no way anybody could have gone to the moon. We didn't have the rocketry yet. We didn't have the know-how to put a man in space, not to mention get him to a moon that's, what, 20 or 23 million miles away? We had no way to get them there at that point. We had to develop all this stuff. We had to completely invent the wheel. We didn't have a lick of it. But thankfully, we had some folks that were willing to try, willing to test what could we do if we started doing this what what about what about if we well this design is really good for atmosphere earth but out there in space we don't have atmosphere we don't have oxygen how are we going to develop something that will work out there wait a minute now that we're going to have all of this stuff to put up into space and all this stuff to maneuver around in space, we're going to need some way to get all of it off the ground. How are we going to do this? And how are we going to get these guys back to Earth once we get them to the moon? It's not like we can just reverse the process, right? What are we going to do? How can we make this work? How can we protect them against all of the dangers out there? Some of which we don't even know yet. We don't even know what the moon is made from. We don't know the type of soil on the moon. We don't know any of that. We don't know anything. All we know is that here's what we got. What problems do we have? And we don't know that these designs are going to work. They're not going to work, by the way. They're going to have to redesign over and over and over again. But that's how we became a people that could put a man on a moon. Testing, trial, some unfortunate deaths in the process. You see, faith that isn't tested is like a lunar program that's never launched anybody yet. <laughs> you might get the right ideas. You might figure out as you go, but you've got to start testing first. You gotta figure out where the problems are. You gotta figure out where you need God's grace to live the next day. 
To really understand God's grace at work in your life, you have got to experience it firsthand. You've got to go through the test. That's how you get gold. He says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. You know how you get gold, right? You've got to get rid of all the other non-gold that's in it. Gold isn't just pure nuggets. It doesn't come in 24 karat bars in the middle of a cave. You've got to mine it out. And you've got to purify it through fire, through smelting, through heat that is extremely hot, so hot it burns everything else away. That's the testing. That's the trial. That, that, that word, that's what it refers to. It's, it refers to the process of purifying metals. And that gold's just going to perish. And the world is doomed. That gold ain't going to last. But your faith, your faith is tested, is found to be genuine. That will last. So you have this tested genuineness. And because we are tested, our faith is genuine. It proves itself genuine. In part because we fail and we falter and we need God's grace. And God's grace is sufficient for us. Right? So, so now, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason you're going through these trials is because there is an end in mind. Now, who, whose praise? Whose glory? Whose honor? Well, it's obviously God's, right? Is it obviously just God's? One of the glories that I think of heaven is that God doesn't hoard all the glory to himself. What do we call that state once God is done removing the sin and making us like him? What do we call that state? What does Paul call that state? When he says that those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. You see, we get to share. And it's not much of it. It's not like, it's not like we get the bulk of it, the majority of it, and God's just left with a little sliver. No, 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 no. God has full glory, but we get to share in that glory. God deserves all the praise. But he's the one telling us, well done, good and faithful servant. That sounds like praise to me. God is the one who gets all the honor. But what an honor it is to stand before him, washed in the blood of the lamb, made pure by his sacrifice for us to be called children of God. You see, we get to share in that praise, in that honor, in that glory. And of course, we're just throwing all our crowns back at his feet because he's the one worthy of it all. See, this is part of the joy of heaven, that communion with God. And, and that's where that tested faith leads. You see, because our faith is genuine, our salvation is guaranteed. That it will result in praise and glory and honor. 
And while we may not see that praise right now in the middle of the testing, in the middle of the fires, in the middle of the sanctification that God is putting us through, the difficult things that are grieving our hearts, even though we don't see it now, it's coming. What's interesting is that that guaranteed salvation is something demonstrated. And it's demonstrated in how we relate with God. Our relationship with God demonstrates our faith. Look, look in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Does that remind you of anything? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Thomas says, unless I put my hands, as I touch the nail scars in his hands and in his feet, as I see him with my own eyes, I will not believe. Jesus says, all right. Shows up and says, here I am, Thomas. Look, feel. It's me. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he says, verse 29 of John 20, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, where are the folks that have not seen? Now, we, we have all kinds of things that we have seen. We've seen movies and depictions of it. We've seen pictures of it. We've seen stained glass windows of it. I think, do we have one? I think we have one where Jesus is... No, I can't. No, we don't. Okay. I thought we had one of him uh, ascending into the clouds. I guess I'm thinking of a different church. I'm not seeing it here. We've seen all kinds of depictions and images of it and movies of it and all sorts of different things. But we've never actually seen him with our own eyes like that. He's not been standing in front of us with those hands. Probably the only scars we'll see in heaven. We've not seen him with our eyes. But we love him anyway. We haven't seen him. We don't see him right now. Even in the midst of the trial and the difficulty, we don't always see how God is working, what he's doing. And yet even in that moment when we don't see him, we still trust him. We still believe in him. Go back to verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. We're able to rejoice even now, even though we don't see him now because we know he's there. And one day we will see him fully as he is. With joy that is inexpressible. You know, the funny thing about this, he's playing with words here. The rejoicing, it's a, it's a unique word for rejoicing. It doesn't occur much in scripture, but it's a joy that is so profound that it bursts forth. It's openly visible to any and all. And yet here he says that he, we are rejoicing, bursting forth with joy that we can't express. There are no words. The adulation is so great, but there are no words. It's like, I wish I could tell you just how much joy I have. But let me tell you why I'm joyful. And maybe you'll be, you'll be as joyful as I am and I won't have to explain it. It's just something you've got to experience for yourself and filled with glory because its source is filled with glory. You can almost see John smiling with that kind of smile when he says, and we beheld his glory. Peter is one who beheld his glory. 
saw him transfigured on the mountain, saw him raised from the dead. And now he's writing to folks who didn't see him and he can tell them, oh, I know it's certain. And even though you haven't seen him, you do too. That brings us to our last major point because our salvation is guaranteed, our joy is a go. We are go for joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Watch this, verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is not just the goal of faith. It's not just what we're aiming for. It's not just the thing that we're trying to hit, the bullseye on the target. It is the actual result of faith. Genuine faith that's been tested and proven will always, always result in our salvation. And in that we can rejoice. Though we face permanent, temporary difficulties, we have a future, uh, present, excuse me, temporary difficulties, we have a future, permanent salvation. So we can rejoice. We can rejoice because our suffering is not permanent. It is temporary. Though now for a little while necessary. Some of them were going through things at that point in time. Some of them would be going through things in the future. Some of them may not be going through these kinds of difficulties directly. They may just be going through it as part of the church family. Helping carry the burden for those who are facing these trials and these testings. But in any case, we know it's not permanent. We know it's not going to last. We know the suffering that we're going through now will give way to a, uh, to a better end in the future. It's only temporary. Peter would go on in 1 Peter 5, verse 10 to say this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you catch the temporariness of the suffering and the permanence of its resolution? After you've suffered a little while, God himself will do these things. It's not permanent. If you are in the middle of testing and you feel like you are being consumed by the fire, you feel like you will not make it past this point. You feel like you're ready to give up and quit on this Christian thing because you have endured so much. If you are in the slow of desperation and despair, walking along with Pilgrim and Pliable and, and, and you just can't see how you can take another step. Can I give you some good news? It's only temporary. There is a helper ready to pull you out of that slough and ready to put your feet on solid ground. It's not permanent. We can also rejoice because our suffering is not supreme. One commentator put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing him. Even though suffering is not God's desire, he says, it is not outside of his sovereignty either. 
When God created this world, he did not create the world for us to be grieved by various trials. He did not design that into the blueprints of creation. No, that was brought about by sin. We suffer in anguish. We grieve through trials that are brought about because sin has ruined this world. We are deformed in our image of God by the sinful nature that makes us poor representations of the God who designed us, who crafted us, who loves us. But that supreme thing is not the suffering we're going through. It's not the sin that causes that suffering. It's the God who makes all things new. He is the one who's supreme. First Peter, again, a couple chapters from now, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. It's not that God wants us to suffer nearly so much as He utilizes the suffering that we go through for a purpose. We'll entrust their souls. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We can trust God in the middle of our suffering because our suffering isn't supreme. He is. We can rejoice because our suffering isn't permanent and it's not supreme. We can also rejoice because it's not empty. God has a purpose and our suffering, our suffering serves God's purpose. Not only that, Paul says in Romans 5. But we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What he says is the suffering you go to makes you enduring. And that endurance, that that produces in you the kind of character that God is looking to bring about. And that character gives you hope because that hope is lying in a God who is indwelling you with his Holy Spirit who will not leave you, who will not forsake you, who will not throw you out with the trash because you fail him but who is constantly dedicated to guarding you and protecting you for heaven. For his presence. For all eternity. So don't worry. Don't fear. Don't, don't look at the present trouble and buy into the lie that this is all that it is. Don't look at the trouble and mistake it for God's rejection of you. No, no, this, this is the day that the Lord has made. Even in the midst of the trial, even in the midst of the testing and in the midst of the fire, he is the one who goes with you. He is the one that leads you. He is the one that protects you. He is the one that is building you. He is the one who loves you through his great mercy. He is the one 
for whom all of these trials are worth enduring. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not now see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. I don't know about you. Seems like a pretty good reason to rejoice to me. Father, we are, some of us are facing difficulties right now. Some of us are in the middle of the fire and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need you to walk with us. For some of us, that fire is different than for others. For some of us, it may be cleansing out the impurities that have long needed to go. And we need a reminder that you are with us, that you're not rejecting us, that you're not destroying us, but that you are purifying us. For some of us, that fire, that fire has been raging for a while and and it seems like it's never going to end. Would you point us to a future where we are refined? We've been purified. We've been made whole. For some of us, the fire is about to come. Would you give us courage as we enter in? Would you remind us that our suffering has a purpose? That it's not empty. Some of us have just been through the fire. It seems like we barely made it out of there. Would you help us rejoice with the joy that recognizes your goodness? Maybe help us be one of those cheerleaders, one of those helpers, one of those people along the sides, encouraging those who are undergoing the trial right now. Would you help us rejoice because we know that as we're tried, as we're tested, our faith is shown to be genuine, and that genuine faith leads to a salvation that's guaranteed, and that salvation that's guaranteed brings us to rejoice all the more as we see the day approaching. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Father, today, whatever the situation we're in, I pray that you would remind us of that truth. We are tried and proven. So help us give you the praise, the glory, the honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.